tuned in to episode 3.9 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. But you must be thinking, wait a second, it's not the 1st or the 15th of the month. What's going on? Bonus episode. That's right, we're full of surprises over here at TAHHQ. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is presented by TAS Gazex, an avalanche of solutions, and our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing. Drink beer outside. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. About a month ago, Barry from Lake Tahoe got in touch with me and suggested we do an episode covering the topic of post-avalanche burial patient care. Great idea, Barry, and I think the whole community can benefit from learning, sharing, and talking about this more. I contacted some individuals, and several individuals contacted me to talk on this subject. I appreciate their enthusiasm, and maybe we can have a follow-up episode with one of them. But when Graham Kane contacted me, I thought it would be a great fit for the episode, and so we conducted the interview remotely last week. This is an interview that I don't need to cash away due to its importance. Graham will introduce himself, but one thing he doesn't mention in his intro is that he's also in his first year of the CMC Avalanche Science Program in Leadville, Colorado. I'll keep my intro short and jump right in with Graham Kane. All right. Well, here we go. Graham, welcome to the show. Thank you, Caleb. Nice to be here. Yeah, welcome. So we've got Graham Kane on the show today. And this episode came about from a listener suggestion to have somebody on the show talking about post-avalanche resuscitation and trauma care. Um, And so I've been talking to a few folks about doing this, and, and Graham seemed to be a great fit to to talk on this subject graham's been a flight paramedic for 20 years yeah he's been a ski patroller as well as a search and rescue paramedic amongst other things uh graham maybe you could introduce yourself and and kind of give us the quick roadmap of your career yeah yeah um so i kind of i was i was in snow science in college and was kind of working on that and kind of got distracted by the world of emergency medical services um and my current role, I'm the clinical specialist slash educator at Eagle County Paramedic Services, which is the ambulance service that serves uh, the Vale area in Eagle County. And part of that role, I've been a, uh, a ski patrol paramedic for most of those 20 years, um, working with Vale Ski Patrol. I work with Vale Mountain Rescue Group as a search and rescue paramedic. Um, my educator role requires that I'm uh, training center faculty for the American Heart Association. So I teach um, advanced cardiac life support, CPR, train instructors in those disciplines, that sort of thing. And um, also I get to work with the U.S. ski team a little bit, training their physicians in trauma care at an annual conference we put on with the World Cup races in Beaver Creek. So um, I get to teach and practice uh, trauma care, resuscitation, and austere environments quite a bit. And so when I Heard that listener question. I thought I'd chat with you and see if I was a good fit to talk about this. Here we go. All right. So uh, we were talking a little bit earlier, Graham, about how you know many people take an uh, avalanche education course, right? And now an avalanche rescue course. But what 
and and we always suggest that you take a wilderness first aid course to to beef up on that. But we were just talking about how it's really important to think about it as beacon shovel probe, uh, pop, pocket mask, or you know, you you mentioned that really the work starts after you dig somebody up, right? I think I think that's true. In a, in a lot of cases, you know. Um, Keep in, in mind that really the rescue work can start uh, the moment you expose that victim's face and, and really start assessing where they're at. And to be a good ski partner, I would definitely recommend getting out there and getting more information than just this podcast. Um, a couple of places uh, I've pulled information from that we're going to talk about here. Um, uh, ICAR, which is the International Commission on Alpine Rescues, kind of the European um, source of some wilderness medicine stuff, and you can find them at alpine-rescue.org. Um, American Heart Association is heart.org, and uh, the Wilderness Medical Society is wms.org, and people should uh, take a look at those. Talk to your local providers of wilderness first aid and, and think about that. There are some distinctions between front country medicine and what you'll learn in kind of a layperson CPR class versus what I would propose you do in a backcountry setting. So getting through a wilderness first aid class would be a great first start for people to really kind of um, dig into what they should be able to do to take care of their uh, partners out in the backcountry. Um, so we can kind of dive into that. I've got a couple of things from those places. We're going to look at um, some of the guidelines and stuff. I want people to know that, um, I'm not just pulling this stuff um, out of my head, but it's a kind of a compilation of some guidelines and, and really distilling it down to a fairly ap simple approach for um, the average backcountry traveler working with the equipment that I think is practical to carry in the backcountry. Um, knowledge is great, but I don't ski around with a defibrillator or you know a huge drug kit or that kind of stuff. I carry you know a little first aid kit with some band aids and. Um, some bleeding control stuff um, and, I, you know, bolster that depending on group size, carry pocket mask. My pocket mask lives in a pocket right next to my probe and my shovel. It's not even in my first aid kit because it's part of that beacon probe shovel resuscitate routine we should we should have in our in our head if we're uh, actually performing an avalanche rescue. Let's talk. Let's talk a little bit of the epidemiology. Um, you know, talk about what, what survival rates are like um, and who who sustains what kinds of injury. Um, in a full avalanche burial, people who have a um, cardiac arrest type situation, 85% of them are asphyxial. They're just running out of oxygen and, and breathable air under the snow. There's about another 5% that are just blunt trauma. Um, that number conceivably is a little bit higher in the United States versus the European numbers. There's some graphs out there that kind of show that difference. Conjecture on snowpack, terrain, who gets drugged through the trees, what kind of terrain we're skiing, that sort of thing. Um, we could we could spend a long time breaking that down. But um, um, then there's just another small group, about 10%, that's a combination of both. The good news is, asphyxial arrest um that that's the large component here we should be able to treat that um and as we look at breaking that group down um we can get um 
about a 90% survival rate um, if we can get to them in under 15 minutes and, and um, resuscitate them. And that kind of plummets where we dropped about a 30% chance of survival after about 30 minutes. Um, and it's also worth noting survival greater than 30 minutes really relies on having a patent airway and an air pocket. So if you're under the snowpack and you're breathing, um, your clock keeps ticking a little bit longer than if you don't breathe under the snowpack, your airway is packed, you're unconscious, or you've had some other injury that prevents you from having an air pocket or breathing under there. Um, so just some ideas about times. That 15 minutes is a good thing to keep in your mind. I think for a single burial, um, having your beacon probe dig time for a burial less than two meters under 15 minutes is a super reasonable goal for a recreational user. And, and that's, you know, think about holding your breath under there for 15 minutes. That's a, a, a thing I'd like people to have in the back of their mind um, when they're um, practicing their rescue. I'm not going to talk a lot about uh, multiple burial, multiple uh, victim triage here. I think um, if we're practicing good travel practices, we should only be dealing with a single burial and not to say that this doesn't happen, but the, the triage resuscitation routine, number of rescuers um, gets pretty complex pretty fast. And I don't think we want to confuse people or dive into that too deep in this hour, but um, we could certainly take that on in another, another venue. Sure. I think uh, one of the things we can talk about, the Wilderness Medical Society guidelines, I want to reference um, the, the practice guidelines. They say it's for wilderness. Uh, the title is Wilderness Medical Society Practice Guidelines for Prevent, Prevention and Management of Avalanche and Non-Avalanche Snow Burial Accidents. And they go pretty deep into epidemiology prevention, airbags, avalongs, um, that sort of thing. I think those are topics for another time. Just going to want to break their down, and they have adopted some of the ideas from the ICAR um, guidelines as well about how to approach, the, uh, approach this. And the ICAR guidelines go pretty deep into some advanced life support stuff, stuff that um, maybe is going to happen in a helicopter, especially in Europe, um, requires some lab values, things like esophageal temperature probes, cardiac monitors, stuff like that. So if you guys happen to pull this up and access it, um, the part we're really talking about in their algorithm is really the part up in white at the top that's just talking about basic life support. Everything that's in that big red box um, that you might see if you pull this up is really what the professional rescuer is going to do and it's going to require some specialized equipment and training and, and gear. And so it's not a very practical approach for um the lay rescuer to kind of employ or even a trained rescuer in the backcountry. What I'm going to talk about is really the same decision-making framework that I'm going to go through here. Um, is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, first thing we kind of take into consideration is burial time. Um, we, and they break it up into less than 60 minutes or greater than 60 minutes. Wilderness Medical Society talks about um, maybe even taking that number down to 30, 35 minutes or something like that. But I think it's reasonable to work on that over an hour, under an hour situation. If you're less than 60 minutes of burial time, which they define as till you expose that face, get that airway open. Um, 
If they have vital signs, which is signs of life, they look like they're breathing, they're moving, um, if you can find a pulse, that sort of thing, administer first aid. If not, um, we can start CPR. And I'm going to quickly review the current AHA guidelines, but I don't want to spend too much time in this because um, you can certainly find a class pretty easily or review this via YouTube um, or the Google if uh, you want a little more info on it. But currently we're teaching 30 compressions to two breaths to so get that pocket mask out, open that airway, clear the airway if it's packed with snow, get that pocket mask out. We're going to um, get on the sternum, lower third of the sternum. In an adult, we're looking for about a third of the anterior-posterior chest diameter, five centimeters is what the AHA kind of listed out, but do not get out your ruler and measure that. About a third is fine. And we're looking for a pace of about 100 to 120 a minute. If you've taken a class in the last few years, you probably got the Bee Gees song in your head, um, Stand Alive. That is just about 100 a minute, so that's kind of the lowest end of what you want to go. We we used to say faster than 100, and then we realized some really enthusiastic people could go way faster than 120. Um, if you're going much faster than 120, you just don't give the heart time to refill. And so it's kind of like cavitating the pump a little bit. Mm. Um, we can't go too fast, and it becomes ineffective. Um, but get on the test and go for it. Um, as long as you're safe, um, you know, as you're doing that strategic digging, think about making a platform that you can pull this person out onto and, and immediately kind of work on them as long as that's a safe place to, to work. We always think about um, rescuer safety um, because people in cardiac arrest have a low chance of survival. Putting additional rescuers at risk um, really is a cost benefit we got to be conscious of, I think. Um, just as a side discussion. So if you're in a safe place, no hang fire, um, you can work on them right there. Absolutely. And um, Graham, maybe you could talk a little bit about careful extrication too and, and the importance of that. Yeah, you know, um, this is a discussion I forget about sometimes because I train a lot of um, professionals and I don't work as much with um, kind of the lay rescuers, kind of entry-level um recreational type providers, but a couple things to keep in mind, you know, people will say, well, I heard you can break ribs when you do chest compressions. Yes, you can, but people who are dead do not care that their ribs are broken and live people live through broken ribs pretty frequently. So, um, you can put that one aside. Um, other things that people are concerned about are, um, neck injuries or spinal injuries, that sort of thing. Um, Studies are really showing um, that gentle movement is not going to exacerbate a spinal injury. And we're getting to the point where we, even in the front country ambulance situation, we're not doing that thing where we put you on a big stiff board and strap you down, put you in collars and make it so you can't move. Um, we'll use a board like that if we need it to, to move you. We jokingly refer to it as the spatula of life um, rather than the jaws of life. But it really just is a tool for helping us move you, and it does happen to immobilize your spine a little bit. The cervical collar is even kind of going away a little bit um, unless there's definite signs of a spinal injury, um, focal neurologic problems like they can't move their arms, they can't move one arm, they can't move their legs, that sort of thing. We might um, be a little more conservative and put those folks in a collar. But if you're gentle and keep things roughly in anatomical alignment, 
you're not going to worsen a spinal injury. And it gets back to that same kind of what's worse, being dead or having a spinal injury. And that's a deep philosophical discussion we don't need to have here. But, um, you know, think about Christopher Reeve and, and some of those other folks who've had kind of devastating spinal injuries. Those are not typical injuries, but they still were able to survive those and go on. So our number one goal here is just airway, breathing, circulation. Um, there's not a, a debate to even have if we don't have, get a pulse back at some point. And so yeah. um, maybe you could expand a little bit on on opening that airway, clearing the snow. You're talking just a simple finger sweep, um, or can you turn the patient? Um, maybe talk a bit about that. And then if you do have the training to use, you know, an, an OPA or something, where that would come into play. Yeah, you know, if you're gonna, if you've got a little bit of training, a little bit of um, uh, room in your first aid kit, and you want to carry something like that around, um, we can talk a little bit about airways. Um, really, if you're inside the washing machine getting turned around, you're trying to breathe. Um, the snow's kind of um, uh, got a lot of air in it. You're going to suck in some snow. You're going to get um, a, you, conceivably a pretty big chunk of snow packed in your airway, and it may take some work to kind of get that out of there. It can get back packed pretty deeply back in the airway. Um, so we don't teach, um, you know, finger sweeps and that sort of stuff in a regular CPR class, but this may be one of those situations where you really got to get in there and remove that ice plug that's uh, in their airway. We'll talk a little bit more about patients who have their airway packed with snow and kind of the, the prognosis here in a little bit. But if you have to do that, don't be afraid to be aggressive. You got to get that airway um, clear and open. It's not just going to melt out of there while you're doing breaths and that sort of thing. You can roll them on their side. Um, head tilt, chin lift, I still think um, is, is a reasonable way to open their airway. If you want to build a little platform or stick something under their head, we're basically trying to get uh, them. And I'll try to describe this um, picture. Somebody laying on their back. We want um them in a position where their head is is in a position where their ear canals are in front of their collarbone. So think about pushing your chin forward and your nose forward like a sniffing position or or uh, um, uh, kind of getting their chin leading. That just kind of gets the tongue up out of the back of the throat so we can move air through there. A little more advanced maneuver if you experience this idea where you're worried about a spinal injury would be to a, to do a jaw thrust, which I'm not going to describe how to do that. Um, but you might talk about it in a class. Um, in this situation, a uh, couple fingers on their chin, couple on their forehead and tilt their head back, get that tongue out of the back of the throat, um, and get their, um, chin elevated should get the tongue out of the back of the throat. That's really hard to maintain. So what we can do is we can carry a nasal trumpet, um, our nasal airway, which is a little rubber tube, we can uh, um, slide into one of their nostrils and it kind of holds the tongue up off the back of the throat and keeps the airway open. That's a little more versatile airway because uh, um, we can still put it in people with a little bit of a gag reflex. So if they get knocked unconscious um, and they're kind of just laying there snoring or something like that, um, but they have a gag reflex, um, we can use that airway. Oral airway is... Um, inserted through the mouth and just kind of holds the tongue up out of the back of the mouth. It makes it a little easier to keep that airway open because um, keeping that head tilt chin lift um, can be difficult 
um, while you're moving around trying to get this rescue going wallowing around in the snow and that sort of thing. So if you think that's worth putting in your first aid kit, depends on group size. If you're doing some professional guiding and you're leading a group of maybe, I don't know, four or five or more people that might be worth having in your first aid kit. I don't carry something like that in my daily um, recreational backcountry kit. But if I was leading a trip or had a bigger group, we might divide up some gear like that. Mm-hmm. Um, something you can consider. It the, the weight ratio for me, it does one thing that's probably not going to happen. So is it worth carrying around is kind of the, the thing, you know, and can I do something else that replicates what that does? And if I'm diligent with that head tilt chin lift, I get the same effect. So that's a, a choice you can make and what you want to put in your first aid kit. Um, hopefully that makes sense to folks. Yeah, I, I think so. On, on that side of things. So, you know, we kind of talked about the, the short-term burial, which hopefully is, is how long it takes to get to people, um, less than 60 minutes, less than 30 minutes, dig them up, um, work on resuscitating them with, um, head tilt, chin lift, get their way open, CPR, 30 compressions, two breaths. Think about, um, a hundred or more minute, but not too fast. Um, going a third of the chest and hopefully you get some results from that. And this is where um, expectations can be a little bit different than maybe some of the numbers we talk about uh, in just the general cardiac arrest population. A lot of the data comes from people who arrest from uh, maybe it's complication from a heart attack, an occluded coronary artery. Um, People who arrest in the general population are generally having some sort of cardiac, cardiac event where Um, They have an occluded coronary artery, blood supply to their actual heart muscle gets interrupted, their heart muscle gets a little ticked off and starts to quiver, quits pumping blood properly, um, and they'll cardiac arrest right on the spot. And um, what happens there is as they keel over, they've got a bunch of oxygen in their blood. Um, And we can get away with what you might hear about called compression-only CPR because we just need to circulate that oxygenated blood. A lot of times we can get away with that for five minutes or so. And we started teaching that to kind of the general public because it would get them to do something while EMS responded um, versus um, falling into that trap of having to do like mouth to mouth or something they deemed disgusting, which was kind of unpalatable. And so most people would tend to do nothing. Um, the problem we have in an avalanche resuscitation situation is the rest is asphyxial. Um, we get buried we uh, get knocked out. Maybe our airway gets packed with snow. Maybe we have an air pocket um, or we're able to breathe a little bit of air in the snowpack. And we lay there and we just kind of gradually run out of oxygen. So by the time we finally get to cardiac arrest, we've already depleted our oxygen supply. That's why it's so important for us to get right on that airway in a avalanche-related resuscitation. We can also throw in the uh, the NARSID um, or the non-avalanche-related snow immersion death you know, uh, uh, burial type thing where somebody gets buried in a tree well or um, some other non-avalanche sort of thing. We would approach that the same way where it's asphyxial. We got to get on that airway right away. Okay. That's uh, a really good point. I think, cause I, I I've been hearing like in the front country, they're almost saying C A B, right? Com- yeah. Like- we do go compressions first and, and that, actually that's kind of what I'm throwing out here. Yeah. We, we jump on the chest, gives us time to, for somebody else to pull out their pocket mask before those first two breaths. Um, we do that because of that idea in the front country. Because the blood probably, is still oxygenated. Yeah, that typical kind of heart attack thing. Um, you know, if, 
I will say assessing for a pulse, if you take a healthcare provider level CPR class, they do teach you like check them for a carotid pulse, check mm-hmm. them for a radial pulse. You get out in the back country and you're rooting around through the neck gaiters and buffs and, you know, um, stuff on people's wrists. And it is tricky to find a pulse. And part of the reason we took pulse checks out of the lay rescuer CPR classes was people were wrong more than half the time when they assessed for a pulse. Um, and they were better off just saying, you know what, they don't look like they're alive. I'm going to do CPR. And if they happen to sit, sit up and say, get off me, great. You kind of figured it out. Um, same thing is kind of appropriate in, in the healthcare provider environment. You know, if we're, we're not sure if they've got a pulse or not, if it's super low blood pressure, low flow, then maybe they're a little hypothermic, so they're not really circulating blood to their wrists anyway. You can feel for a carotid. Um, you know, if we see other signs of life, they're moving a little bit. Um, their skin is pink, especially on core areas like their forehead or their chest where we don't um, vasoconstrict quite as much. Um, you know, we, we can still do chest compressions. There used to be this old wives tale of, of, Oh, if you do chest compressions on somebody with a pulse, you'll kill them. Um, it doesn't turn out to be true. Um, we do it all the time on kids and for pediatrics, we do chest compressions if their heart rate's under 60, um, and it's not improving. So, you know, we can get away with that on adults. If they sit up and say, what's going on? I was taking a nap or something like that, then it's a good time to stop. But if, if they're, um, not responding to that, you can keep going with chest compressions until you see some fairly obvious signs of life. Um, there may be some coughing, some sputtering, um, you know, as they come back around some of the, some people may respond pretty, pretty quickly. If you get them, get them out, they don't have that, um, occluded coronary vessel. So if we can get some oxygen circulating through things, they may respond to that. Um, where things get a little trickier is when more time passes. We, you know, think about how long you can hold your breath for. Um, this is really kind of the same time frame. You know, the brain can go without oxygen for maybe five, six minutes, and then we start to have some some issues. So that's greater than 60-minute burial, or we could even say greater than 30-minute burial if we're looking at the WMS guidelines. Um, we need to temper our expectations a little bit, but we still provide care. And hopefully... Um, you know, we can get to people faster than that, but in certain circumstances, it may be a longer than 60 minute burial. Maybe you had to come out of the hut and come respond or something like that. Who knows what the circumstances, but still think about, um, digging them up, looking for signs of life. If they've got signs of life, administer first aid. We're going to talk about that a little bit. If they don't have signs of life and the burial was long, we've got to look at a couple of the things, um, that'll help us kind of gauge our prognosis. Um, if their airway was patent, um, get your CPR going and, um, you know, hopefully, um, we can get stuff, uh, get some sort of response, I guess is what I want to say. When I say patent airway, I mean, not packed with airway. Maybe they had an ice mask. Their airway was clear. There was some evidence that they were breathing under the snow. There was an air pocket, that sort of thing. If you have a greater than 60 minute burial and the patient has a, a, occluded airway. It doesn't look like they ever took a breath under the snowpack. Um, temper your expectations. Certainly do CPR. You're going to feel some remorse later if you don't try a few things, but temper your expectations. And things we would look for 
to kind of guide our, our time frame for trying um, resuscitation. Are things like greater than 60 minutes, is, is their body frozen solid? That's, you know, we treat hypothermia, but that person's not coming back um, if they're frozen solid. Um, lethal trauma, if they are just um, mangled, have clear injuries incompatible with life, um, you know, you can certainly try some CPR, but temper your expectations there. And that's pretty dark things to discuss, but avalanches are pretty violent. And this is stuff you're going to see if you have to dig up your companion. So I'm a huge proponent of prevention, but this is a point you might get to if you um, end up having to stage this kind of response. Um, hopefully that makes sense. We kind of took some side discussions there um, and we can resummarize if we need to, but um, my big take on points are dig them up fast, <laughs> get there, be good with your beacon probe shovel routine, get to them in less than 30 minutes, dig them up, try CPR. Um, generally, if people haven't responded in a half hour or so to CPR, um, your efforts are probably futile at that point. But that doesn't mean um, you have to stop at that point. If professional rescue is close and you want that professional opinion. Um, and you want to give them every chance, you can keep it going if you've got enough rescuers. you got to think about your own um, group uh, risk um, as well. You know, is it getting dark? Are you in a dangerous spot? Are you, are you now completely exhausted and you can't take care of yourself? Um, those sorts of things kind of play into the um, circumstances of, of how long you want to um, attempt resuscitation for. But um, in and there's all these kind of heroic stories of long burial times. Um, and so certainly give them every chance. But um, the data kind of shows longer than 30 minutes in most cases is probably futile. Mm -hmm. um, it's dark. It's dark a thing that is for me to throw out there. And I can't imagine. I've never had to do this on a, a friend or a ski companion or something like that. This is not going to be anybody's best day. You know, it's bad enough when we have to do it on people we've never met before. <laughs> sure thing. Um, so, you know, kind of a dark topic, but I want you guys to, I want the listeners to really kind of understand what they're getting into and, and incorporate that idea into their risk attitudes, you know, and, and hopefully never get into the search situation because they adjust their risk, um, attitudes appropriately. Yeah. Um, so Graham, that was a great, uh, summary and, and, and fairly in depth into, asphyxia and resuscitation and, and post avalanche care. Um, maybe we could talk about, you know, what if you did revive somebody, then some of the other considerations um, in terms of hypothermia and extrication and, and kind of the timelines that we need to be looking at for some of that stuff. Um, maybe you could jump into that. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, even if you don't get into a cardiac arrest situation, there are some ugly injuries you can get from being tossed around in an avalanche. Um, and so we look at blunt trauma. We look um, at extremity trauma. Um, and we look at hypothermia as kind of the, um, the big things we need to take care of. Um, fortunately, in most situations, extremity trauma is not immediately life-threatening. Occasionally, it can be limb-threatening. Um, and so we still like to get those out of the backcountry um, you know, it's, it's one thing if you kind of blow your knee and maybe you can limp out on it. It's another thing if you have a femur fracture or, a, um, something like that. So, um, we do like to, um, you know, splint 
extremity injuries kind of in the, in the normal position. And I, you know, I think about, I've got a probe pole, I've got ski poles, I've got tree branches, I've got frame sheets in my pack. I don't carry a SAM splinter, fancy stuff for splinting. I kind of, you know, based on the injury, we kind of package it up with things that we have, you know, you can deconstruct a probe pole and probably splint up two people's all four extremities, if depending on what the injuries are. Um, traction splinting for a femur fracture, um, you know, you can try to get fancy if you want to do that. Traction splinting is more of a comfort thing. Those big thigh muscles kind of spasm and kind of cram the ends of the broken bone back together. It can be really uncomfortable, um, but it's really hard to maintain traction in a kind of makeshift traction splint. So it's probably better to just kind of line things up, keep them from bouncing around and, and move people out. Um, that's kind of my quick and dirty wisdom on extremity injuries. Those things fortunately are, are very attention getting. Um, and so you'll be drawn to them when you see them. Um, they're rarely life threatening. And so think about head, neck, torso, abdomen, pelvis, um, all the stuff that can kill you is, is contained in your core. Um, we think about chest wall injuries, fractured ribs, if you break a couple ribs, odds are you're going to develop um, a small pneumothorax. Um, not a big deal. If you really break a lot of ribs um, and really kind of cave that chest well in, there's a small chance you could develop a tension pneumothorax. Um, and that's where your lung um, or the area around your lung fills up with some air and starts to push your heart and the stuff in the middle of your chest over. It's not so much that you lost the lung, it just starts to kink off some of the big blood vessels that return blood to the heart. Um, really, the way we turn those into tension is by um, administering positive pressure ventilation. So if the patient's breathing on their own, they're probably not going to develop tension pneumothorax. Um, if you take a, maybe in a woofer class, I'm not super familiar with the woofer curriculum, they might talk about um, needle decompression of of the chest if you're a professional guide and your medical director kind of proposes proposes that you do this you might carry a couple 10 gauge angiocaths um, it's about a four inch needle that's about half the thickness of a pencil in your first aid kit so you could decompress a chest doesn't take a lot of training um, in most places that's a paramedic level skill so kind of depends on where your medical director is willing to turn you loose on and how much Training they want to give you, but that's a way we could mitigate a, a tension pneumothorax in the field. Um, abdominal injuries, we could have abdominal bleeding. That's really something we're not going to be able to deal intra-abdominal bleeding. We're not going to be able to deal with that too well in the field, but we could suspect it and kind of treat for shock. Um, pelvic injuries, um, if they have an obvious pelvis injury, um, or if you're kind of trained in assessing their pelvis, if you kind of put your hands on their hip bones and kind of push back or push them together and things are pretty tender, they could have a pelvic fracture. You can lose three liters of blood in your pelvis. That thing can bleed like stink. And we can compress the pelvis by really putting anything around um, their hip, hip bones. And I'm not talking about like up on your iliac crest where your belt is, but actually down lower. We tend to break our pelvis kind of right at our pubic bone and it kind of wants to splay open. So the place to put that um, compressive type thing where we can put a, a something, a pair of ski pants, a sheet, um, you know, any, anything that um, 
is kind of big and wide. I want to say like four or five inches wide around their pelvis and maybe use a stick or a section of ski pole or something like that as a windlass to kind of tension that up and pull their pelvis back together. That could be life-saving. Um, you want it kind of down low, kind of if you feel on the side of your hip where your femur comes up, that uh, trochanter out there on the side, you want it down where you think they could almost, for men, take a leak over the top of it. Um, it seems too low to pull their pelvis back together, but that's really where we get the best leverage. If it's up where their belt goes or just below that, we're probably a little bit too high. That can be life-saving, uh, though, as far as um, torso injuries go. Um, so splint stuff up, control bleeding. Um, we talk a lot about shock care, you know. Um, paramedics like to think they're all fancy or advanced providers. They come in and they want to start IVs and um, give people a bunch of salt water. But it turns out salt water um, just kind of dilutes their blood, doesn't carry oxygen. <laughs> so it's less of a good solution than than blood products are. There's a couple ways we can get blood products. We can go to a trauma center and raid the blood bank. That's a ways down the road. Or we can uh, elevate people's feet, which we were probably taught at some point. If we elevate um, their legs, um, we can kind of auto-transfuse maybe as much of a, as a third of a liter of their own blood kind of back into their core um, from their legs. And that's oxygen-carrying blood. So in round numbers, you could argue that's about the equivalent of giving them a liter of IV fluid in terms of getting some fluid back into their uh, core system and that sort of thing. It only works once. You can't do the like Bugs Bunny drowning thing where you pump their leg up and down. Um, just got to put their legs up and keep it there. That's all you're getting. But um, good thing to think about. We kind of forget about that in the, in the care of shock. Keep them warm. Um we talk a lot about the, the trauma triad um, in, in some of our trauma care, which is acidosis, hypothermia, and coagulopathy. Um, acidosis is just when, when you're not getting enough oxygen, our pH shifts a little bit, things don't go well, your body kind of comes unhinged. Hypothermia, um, we talk about that all the time in snow immersion or, or avalanche-related stuff. Coagulopathy is just your blood's ability to clot. clot excuse me. Um, Unfortunately, clotting does not work well unless your body's pretty much at its normal temperature. So another reason we should treat people aggressively for hypothermia um, if they've been traumatized. Um, so those two kind of go hand in hand. These things kind of all make each other worse, but you may hear somebody discuss that trauma triad. Um, hypothermia. Um, you guys probably talk about this if you take an AVI rescue class or somewhere in your level one class. They'll briefly talk about um kind of creating a, a hypothermia wrap and, and getting somebody ready to move. And there's, there's a couple things I like to talk about with the hypothermia wrap. Um, one is getting people warm. The other is kind of packaging up them up in a way that we could move them a short distance if we had to. And sometimes these two things kind of go hand in hand. Um, if you carry a rescue sled, we can use that, um, uh, with some layers, maybe somebody's got a sleeping bag, depending on the type of outing we're on. We can put some hot water bottles in there. We like to get um, some heat in there, um, especially in the axilla, especially in the, um, you know, up against the chest and the couriers, areas where we can really get that blood rewarmed and then package it all in. If they happen to be wet, um, Studies are showing just add warm layers on top of that, getting them naked to try to replace those um, 
wet layers is going to make them super cold and be hard to recover from. So if you protect them from the wind and stop that evaporative cooling, it's really not going to make as much a difference that they're wet. Um, you know, maybe a consideration in the spring, if somebody goes in a Creek or something like that, but, um, generally in an avalanche related thing, um, people aren't going to be soaking wet, um, except for maybe the rescuers from the rescue effort, different problem there. But, um, so that kind of runs, runs through, um, trauma care, bleeding control, hypothermia. Um, I talked a little bit about sea collars and spinals already. Um, you know, bleeding control is something I, I jumped over and I, I do want to talk about bleeding control. Um, a couple times a winter, we get somebody off the ski area. Usually they're like, oh, I just got my skis tuned and they come off the mountain with a just massive laceration. Um, and interestingly, a lot of times these just don't bleed a ton. It's a pretty clean cut. Um, in a avalanche, you're going to get drug through all kinds of stuff, depending on the terrain you're in. You could have a, a different type of kind of tearing or avulsion type injury, um, could get some bleeding going on. Um, we teach direct pressure is still kind of the first, especially for extremity bleeding, um, and getting, getting direct pressure going. It's going to take longer, um, with, if the patient's cold, because again, blood doesn't clot well when it's cold. Um, some people will talk about hemostatic dressings. There's quick clot. Um, there's C-Lox. There's a bunch of dressings out there. Um, they work nicely in a kind of tactical or austere environment because they do cut the amount of time you have to apply pressure to the wound. But if you apply direct pressure, you should get a similar effect. Um, if direct pressure isn't working, you have an obvious arterial or a large venous injury. Um, the next stage is going to tourniquets. Um, and you can carry a commercial tourniquet with you. Um, they are generally about an inch and a half, two inches wide. We want to spread that um, pressure out and it gives you kind of a built-in windlass you can spin um, to tighten that thing up, kind of like we talked about <laughs> with the pelvic um, fracture um, or pelvic binder. Um, it's another one of those things that's going to go in your first aid kit and maybe never get used. So you got to decide if it's your role to carry that sort of thing in your, in your kit now, how heavy you want your first aid kit to be. Um, if you've got a long valet strap for your ski stuff, you could probably get around there. And, and as long as you can get a few twists and it, start twisting that up, not quite wide enough, it is going to be hard on the tissue underneath. You could put a couple of those next to each other and kind of wind them up in, in tandem you could maybe pull a, I don't like Velcro. Um, uh, maybe one of the, like the booster strap off a boot or something. Yeah. That's what I was starting to say. Uh, you know, so a little bit of loss for words there, but, uh, um, like the booster strap, I like the cam strap ones that work yeah. like a river strap. The Velcro ones are just, I don't like Velcro in the snow for any use, but sure. <laughs> it's especially awkward in this, but you know, a lot of the boots, especially, um, Dina Fitz boots, um, you know, have that kind of cam strap type thing. If you can get one of those off thing is you got to probably unscrew it from the upper cuff. It's probably on somebody's foot. It gets awkward in a hurry. So, sure. um, you know, having that kind of something in the back of your mind, what am I going to do if I need to apply a tourniquet, even a tight constriction band may slow things down unless you get into a true arterial bleed type situation. Um, there's also this idea that we're 
talking about now with what we call junctional bleeding. You know, you get into an area like a your groin or your axilla um, or an armpit or something that's not really in a spot where you could put a tourniquet above it. Um, and so we teach this thing called wound packing where you basically um, pull out like a roller gauze out of your first aid kit and just start feeding it into the wound, you know, kind of pushing both with both fingers and kind of trying to pack it in on top of where that bleed is. Um, if you're old like me and took your wilderness first aid or wilderness EMT class back in like the nineties, they probably taught you something that they called pinch the bleeder, like getting your hand in there and finding the bleeding vessel and, and grabbing it between a couple fingers and, and, and pinching it. I don't know how long you really want to hold on to somebody's artery for, so that doesn't seem quite as practical. We've learned a lot in some of our uh, military escapades about trauma care and packing wounds is, is really, um, super effective. There's a program that's rolling out now um, called Stop the Bleed. And I think I've got the website listed here. It's called bleedingcontrol.org. You can look that up and look for classes in your area. It's kind of aimed at um, the general public for kind of urban, something happens near you. This is immediately life-saving. So it's another one of those medical situations where you're kind of dependent on the people in close proximity um, with the idea that being some of the stop the bleed stuff, tourniquets and wound packing materials might um, be deployed with public access defibrillators, um, and you'd be able to access that kind of stuff in in a mass shooting or or something like that in a school office or in a public mass gathering area like a stadium or something like that. And so, just trying to roll out this this course. It's still pretty new. I haven't seen the entire curriculum, but it's basically tourniquets and wound packing. Mm-hmm. So you can um, do some of that immediately life-saving work. So, so if you did apply a tourniquet, what are some considerations for that? Like what, like what is it you mentioned, if you can't control the bleeding with direct pressure, you could apply a tourniquet. Maybe you could just talk a little bit more about where that would go in relation to the injury and then duration. Yeah. 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 You, you, you know, anybody who's been around the block a couple of times was probably taught at some point, like tourniquets are bad. As soon as you put one on, they're guaranteed to lose the, the limb and let yet you go out in the uh, in the actual public and there's not always people running around with prosthetics or wooden legs you know like a bunch of pirates um, there is a amount of time that that limb can be ischemic with that tourniquet on there um, and it is measured in in quite a few hours um, and you'll probably if you probably maybe heard about like you write the time on their forehead and with your sharpie and that sort of thing. Um, that's great if it's like, you know, a, a bomb on a bus and we're putting tourniquets on people who are going to get to the hospital um, at some unknown time. If it's one patient, you know, usually the commercial tourniquets have a little spot on them. You can write on there. You can make a note on on your in your field notebook about what time you provided that care. Um, as long as we can get them to more definitive care within, you know, five or six hour window, Um that limb is probably going to do okay. There's always extenuating circumstances, um, you know, but the typical backcountry evac, um, you know, your ability to rendezvous with even ground-based search and rescue and stage some sort of uh, evacuation from the backcountry is is going to occur in that time frame. Mm-hmm. Occasionally get stretched a little longer due to weather um, if you're in a super remote area. So if you're going deep into the 
Alaska backcountry or something like that, you're you're going to have a, a maybe a slightly different situation. But your average day skier, especially here in Colorado, um, you know, it's going to be coming out of backcountry in a time frame where once we get to the hospital, um, they can bring down that tourniquet and they can kind of reassess what they need to do to control that bleeding and surgically repair the the injury um, as needed and bring that limb back um, back online and it can be painful and it can take a little while for, for things to feel normal again. Um, occasionally we, um, can compress some nerves in there and nerves don't like to be compressed, but over the course of a few days, those nerves generally come back. Um, we tend to think of nerve injuries as being kind of definitive and that's somewhat true in your central nervous system, but peripheral nerves actually have some ability to, um, reestablish those connections. It just takes a little while. They grow on the order of just a few millimeters um, a day or something like that. I'd have to, I'd have to deep dive to Google to give definitive info on that, but they will, they will reestablish their connections as long as the tissue planes are um, lined up. And and so those limbs will come back online and, and do pretty well. Gotcha. Well, Graham, that's a great introduction and kind of review, I think, of of post-avalanche accident care for for patients. Anything else you want to cover there before? I know you you had maybe a couple um, recounts of some some rescues and stuff that you've been part of that I think could be a good story, storytelling for this episode. But anything else you want to cover? Yeah, I always enjoy that part. Uh, Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. That's okay. uh, I always enjoy that part of the podcast, kind of learning from other people's experiences. You know, it's kind of like having um, somebody read the snowy torrents to me at bedtime. Right, exactly. (laughs) Uh, You know, learning from people's um, situations. Um, When you look at the data, um, there are very few um, professional rescuer successful resuscitations. And um, gets into something maybe I touched on a little bit earlier, just the time of deployment in the United States. Uh, you think about most of your kind of county or sheriff's department based search and rescue groups are volunteer. Um, and then we're talking about pretty big areas they cover in the United States. So, um, in all the years I've been a search and rescue paramedic, I've never gone into the backcountry on what was a viable resuscitation, um, so I've got a couple of stories I, I want to talk about um, that kind of illustrate that point and think uh, get you guys thinking about um, your own preparedness. Um, I've got a couple um, stories um, from backcountry accidents where patients survived. Um, you know, you can go in the CAIC website. Um, they kind of keep the compendium of avalanche accidents and see how many people get buried and killed and um you can see those complete burials um, versus partial burials. And if you can keep your head above the snow, your outcome is much more likely to be a good situation. Um, you know, I think I think those round numbers are out there. And we talk about them a lot in avalanche classes. So I'll, I'll leave that at that. Um, quite a few years ago now, uh, maybe 10 years ago or so, we had a skier in a backcountry area of Fell Pass called the Cupcakes. Um, and he and his partner um, were skiing. The Cupcakes is kind of a semi-gladed area, um, maybe three or four miles back in. There is um, They do some grooming up there. There's some mixed use where they manage the terrain. 
they run a snowcat to kind of groom out some of the snowmobile trails. And there's areas that are snowmobile only. There's areas that are skier only. There's areas that are mixed use. And the cupcakes is kind of one of those areas where people will kind of tow in and then skin the actual run. Um, and he and his partner um, kind of got inadvertently separated in the trees. They lost visual contact. And I think, um, you know, that's a, a recurrent topic I've heard in some of the other episodes. Um, so something for people to think about in terms of, of injury. He happened to set off a small slide. And in my recollection, it was somewhere in the D one and a half size slide in that area and, and got kind of knocked over and carried a little bit and ended up with a leg fracture. Um, he kind of reunited with his buddy. Um, they were not well prepared to kind of deal with, um, I want to say it was an open leg fracture, um, tibia fracture. They kind of reunited. They were able to make contact with some other um, skiers in the area who happened to be a couple off-duty Loveland ski patrollers. Um, and they um, kind of went back in and kind of rendered some initial care. Um, it was never dispatched as an avalanche accident um, to search and rescue, or at least not initially. It was a, it came in as just a injury in that area. Um, and so some of the initial rescuers going in with Dale Mountain Rescue were kind of skied up, and then here's all this avalanche debris. A um, little bit of a different surprise. So I don't know if this one actually made it in the avalanche accidents that the CAIC records because of the way it got um, kind of thrown out there. Um, so they kind of hunkered down, provided some care. At this point, you know, it's starting to get dark, temperatures dropping. We have, um, he's one of our search and rescue paramedics now, and he'd been a longtime Vail Mountain Rescue member, Beaver Creek Ski Patroller. Um, he was able to go into the field and kind of provide some initial care. And um, because of the time of day and, and resource availability, they ended up kind of having to hunker down. So they built a fire, they put on every puffy coat they had, um, and kind of ramped up the resources to do a ground evacuation. And because there's some CAD operations in the Vail Pass area, they were ultimately able to move him a short distance, rendezvous with the cat, put him in the cat. Now we've got heat, less austere environment to provide some medical care. Um, take short cat ride out to the Vail Pass rest area where he's able to transition the ambulance. And, um, you know, good outcome, uh, survived that injury. However, if they hadn't been able to make good contact with some other skiers in the area, hadn't been able to hunker down and keep warm, build a fire, um, that sort of thing, um, could have taken a very ugly turn and been a really rough night in the woods, if not potentially limb threatening based on the time frame it could take to get help in there, you know? So my takeaways from this one are kind of like that inadvertently alone and correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't it Drew Hardesty who was kind of talking about that as kind of a. Yeah. Mark, Mark Staples and Evelyn Lees have been going around and doing the, the talk at, at some of the saws on effectively alone being effectively. Alone. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that, you know, we've had some other accidents where that's been a thing, you know, you, you're doing the leapfrog and you get too far mm -hmm. past your group, you lose that visual or, or radio contact thing. So first takeaway is like when you're skiing, maintain that visual contact or that, you know, have, have a, a good communication plan. And there's been a lot of talk about communication, um, but also having that, what's my communication plan with the outside world, you know, do you carry an inreach or a spot or using 
radios? Are you in an area where there's a common FRS radio channel? Um, do you have cell service in that area? That sort of thing. Have a couple plans for how you're going to get help because, you know, I ski in small groups, two, three people all the time. But as soon as one of those people gets hurt, it becomes pretty overwhelming for the other two resource-wise to kind of uh, get help, affect rescue, um, provide care, and make all these things happen at once. And knowing that somebody's on their way to try to rendezvous with you is is very comforting, even if it takes them a little while. Mm-hmm. Um you know, having those extra layers in your pack, being able to build a fire. I used to carry an old lifelink snow saw, which had like a tooth every like eight inches or something ridiculous like that. And it was great for kind of cutting through the snow. But if you wanted to cut down some tree branches and make a shelter in a tree well or something, it was pretty useless. So, you know, most of the snow saws out there now um, are pretty effective at cutting wood. And so having that idea, like, how am I going to build shelter? You know, do I have a hypothermia? bag or a, a bivy sack or something like that do i have uh, fire starting materials that sort of stuff and and really being prepared to kind of um, start your own process and they they had a lot of that but things went better once they were able to get some professional rescue um there on that one so sure. um you know good takeaways avalanche accident with with pretty good outcome mm-hmm. um you know um the other ones that I've I've been on, um, we've had snowmobile accidents up in the near the flat tops, which is kind of north of Glenwood Springs or north of the actual town of Eagle or out towards the west end of our county where, you know, people doing stunts have injured their back and we've been able to go in by ground, kind of um, gather them up. Um, they knew what their resources were as well. They went, uh, this was a, maybe three or four years ago, a gentleman in his mid-30s took a, uh, what he quoted as much bigger than expected air, pretty flat landing on his dew, kind of jacked up his back and uh, um, lay there in the snow. It's a long ways from civilization in our that end of the county. It's kind of this weird corner where um, a few counties come together, but the geography doesn't make sense. So we respond there, even though it's not our, our county. And, and, by the time we were able, it's like an hour drive to the trailhead. Then I got on a snowmobile, went in, found this guy. In that time, his buddies had come down to the Sweetwater Community House, um, picked up a ski patrol toboggan that gets stored there um, because it's a popular snowmobile area. Gone up, packaged him all up, hypothermia wrapped him all up. Um, he was happy as a clam. They were able to, and this is legal in Colorado, they gave him a little weed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... Uh, he was pretty happy by the time I got my hands on him. So we were going to do a ground evacuation. Um, and HATS had been uh, the High Altitude Aviation Training Centers, the National Guard unit we collaborate with. And they had been flying in the area and were able to kind of swoop into a flat area, scoop us up, flew me and the patient back to the airport and saved him a couple hours of bouncing around in a in a behind a snowmobile and a ski patrol toboggan, but he got great care because his buddies, um, they had, um, the BCA link radios all on their shoulder straps, you know, I guess I'll give those guys a plug. Oh yeah. Andy and Steve are friends of mine. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great tool. Yeah. You know, I, I carry the blister pack Motorola's. I kind of like being able to scan all the channels at once, but I also have some of those, 
those radios, but they were able to communicate and really kind of affect their own rescue. And they would have gotten that guy out to the trailhead had we not shown up. So it was good, good. Another good example of kind of knowing their resources, having good communication plan and really being kind of able to self-affect a rescue within a group. Um, you know, so good takeaways from that. Uh, there are lots of ugly stories about people getting buried and, and killed in the, in the backcountry from avalanches and, um, you know, recounting those is not something I really want to do here. Um, Snowy Torrance is a great place to kind of read and learn the accident reports on the CAIC site, um, are, um, good place to kind of look through those and, and don't read too many, you know, you kind of get like PTSD by proxy if you deep dive those and it'll make sure. you afraid to go in the back country. The risk is still pretty low, um, you know, in, in the whole scheme of things that this is going to be a thing. So backcountry skiing, especially on certain days, I think it's still safer than going to the resort, <laughs> um, you know, depending on what things are like. We, the Vail Ski Patrol group, we've had a number of successful cardiac arrest resuscitations on Vail Mountain, prolonged arrests, cold patients, um, where we're doing CPR on the snow. It is doable. Um, so, you know, don't don't let one of your takeaways from this episode be that cardiac arrest in the backcountry is definitive. We're talking about young, healthy people with healthy hearts. If anybody is going to respond to CPR, these are the people. You know, the, sh- the shorter the time frame, the better. But um, we've had some some people cardiac arrest on Vail Mountain and have great outcomes from good, quick, early CPR from bystanders, getting patrol on scene, doing um, as the best CPR we can or getting pulses back on scene, jetting them to the bottom or calling um, flight for life to the scene. That's another quick topic we should talk about is kind of interfacing with, with professional rescue, um, but getting people off the mountain in a hurry and having great outcomes. So even though it's a kind of austere environment, um, you know, if you're out in Blue Sky Basin, Vail's a big ski area, it can take us couple hours get you to the front side sticking in an ambulance so that's a lot like being in the back country mm-hmm. <laughs> once you get way way back in the back bowls so certainly um you know a similar situation just uh, a different different idea about the rescue not avalanche related but sure. um, we we do some drills um with ski patrol i think we're doing one maybe tomorrow i'll see if i can get to that um simulate an avalanche accident with the resuscitation response and that sort of thing. So if we have an inbounds avalanche um, and there's resuscitation involved, we kind of have gone through the motions in practice. So we practice that stuff, but the um, occurrence just is super fleeting. It just hasn't come up yet, but something we think about. Sure. Um, you know, knowing, knowing what the, the professional rescue resources are in the areas you ski um, frequently is, is a really good idea. Um, knowing what your local search and rescue is like, who shows up, what their level of training is, are they volunteer, what their time is. If you're in Europe, you know, what kind of helicopter is going to swoop in and save you immediately. If you're in the U S um, you know, they fly um, much different types of programs in, in Europe where they're flying instrument flight programs, dual pilot things. They'll do crazy things in helicopters we'd never think of over here. They have hoist programs, which is where somebody can come down on a cable and pluck you out of there. 
you'll see that in World Cup races where they like if you blow your ACL, they'll come hoist you out. That stuff's pretty heroic and it's pretty high risk for the flight crew. So it's a little fewer and farther between. Um, like I mentioned, we have a hoist program with um, hats here in Colorado um, and the Air National Guard. There's a little bit different unit that covers some of the front range um, out of um, a different base. Um, Intermountain Life Flight in Utah does that kind of work. Um, and then there's a few others like Travis County in Austin. Texas, their avalanche rescue program is probably not super developed <laughs> down there, but um, hoist rescue is pretty um, rare in this country. So what you're looking at is looking at if a helicopter is available and they fly, they're probably flying on days where they have a high enough ceiling that they can fly around and see the ground the whole time. So if it's snowing, you've got a low ceiling, um, don't expect a helicopter. And then they're looking for places that are uh, less slope than about 10 degrees where they can get on the ground. What they can do varies a little bit by uh, pilot experience and and risk tolerance and what kind of aircraft they're in. But as a general rule, it needs to be pretty flat. It's great if it's packed down. So if you're out there on snowmobiles and you can kind of do some hot laps in a meadow and pack it down, they get really worried when they put those skids on the ground about sinking in because it pretty much means they can't take off again sometimes they'll want to do what they call a hot load situation where they come in and they're still kind of under some power so they don't have as big a risk of of sinking in maybe you do some of that in the rubies to mm -hmm. streamline things it's a little bit riskier to try to load a patient or a, a person who's not under their own power in the helicopter where all the spinny stuff's still spinning so a lot of times they like to shut down so we can move a lot of people in and out of the rotor disc area. You don't want to approach the aircraft um, without um, direction from the crew. So you want to kind of stay down and low, secure things that are going to blow away so they don't blow up into the rotor system. Because if that aircraft gets taken out of service for something like that, now you're back to plan B. Um, generally, they, you know, especially daytime, even more area at night, they like to have uh, about 100 by 100. I know when we're doing ski stuff, we get away with a lot less about plucking people out and making another lap. But if they're going to come in for a aeromedical type thing, set down 100 by 100 is great. Mark the four corners, mark the windward side. If you've got some sort of streamers, um, you know, that'll show them the, the wind or you can take out a scarf or something like that and hold it up so they can kind of see what the winds are doing. Um, it helps them. If it's getting dark, you can shine lights down on where you want them to land. Don't shine lights up at that aircraft. Most programs now are probably using night vision goggles, and if you hit them with a um, white light, um, they're going to have to fly around for a while until they can see again before they can come back in and make a second pass. And if they're not happy, they may fly away and not come back. So don't don't, don't shine lights up at the aircraft. If there's wires or or poles or stuff that's hard to see as they're coming in, um, they, you know, uh, shine a light up on those things. It's not as, as long as it's not going to inadvertently shine up at the, the aircraft, um, you know, and that's, that's great. That'll get them in there and is a great resource, um, really shortens time to definitive care for some of these more uh, concerning injuries, but have a plan B, you know, if they can't get in there, um, if the elevation's high, if the density altitude's not great, um, if they don't like the approach, if the pilot's a little more conservative, 
they may decide it's just a no-go. Um, and then you're stuck with whatever your ground resources are. So always have that in mind, you know, um, just in case you can't use the helicopter resource. Um, you spend a fair amount of time working on helicopters. Does that kind of rhyme with? Yeah, absolutely. How you guys approach stuff? I think that's all good stuff. Um, you know, even yeah, if you if you're not with snowmobiles and you're just on skis, just packing some of that snow down makes a big difference, and and the pilot can easily see the the landing zone that you've you've picked out, and hopefully it's flat. You know. Yeah, and you just, know most pilots. Most pilots working in a mountain area are going to be used to snow. If it's new snow, there'll be that little powder cloud that comes up. Most of those guys will know to kind of come in on short final and pause until the snow clears and then they'll set down and they've got their, um, their radar altimeter so they can see where they're at, even if it gets kind of windy and the snow is blowing around. So, right. you know, it's a, it's a great resource, but don't depend on it for everything. Cause it'll vary a little bit depending on where you're at. County-based search and rescue in the United States is mostly volunteers. So, um, you know, expecting advanced life support resources to come in with search and rescue is a little bit location dependent. Mm -hmm. Um, We do it with um, Bell Mountain Rescue Group for Eagle County. We do put our, we've got a handful of of, um, hoist capable EMTs and and paramedics who will do that on a broader area. Summit County um, Rescue Group here in the in the Copper Breckenridge, Dillon Silverthorne area has um, one or two search and rescue paramedics, but their program has dwindled a little bit. Um, and the farther you get from I-70, the less advanced life support there is, whether you're in the backcountry or not. So those things will vary a little bit. Um, so, you know, if you're a wilderness first responder, you may continue to be the highest level of care even after search and rescue shows up mm. um, in some of the more rural areas in Colorado and some other areas. So be be prepared um, to take care of your own companions is, is really kind of my, my still my big takeaway from what we're talking about here. Number one, prevention of getting caught and buried in an avalanche. Number two, self-extrication and rescue, right? Beacon yeah, shovel, think- probe, pocket mask first aid kit and practice with it too. Right. And then, and, yeah. then, and then also having the things that you would need to spend a night and stay warm in the backcountry Cause that's a distinct possibility as well. Yeah. You don't have to be comfortable, but it's nice if mm-hmm. you can hollow out a tree well and stay alive, you yep. know, temperatures can get pretty low. Um, care for frozen toes is advancing. Um, you know, but, uh, um, with a small amount of gear in your pack, um, you can, you can spend a night out there and, and be in pretty good shape the next morning and, yeah. and go from there. Um, yeah, you know, there's a ton of other topics we could dive into, but I, you know, to keep things somewhat concise, I feel like I kind of rambled on. So hopefully I hit the big points, but, um, you know, if people want to, um, deep dive some other topics on wilderness medicine, um, there's great people out there that know a lot about this stuff and um we could always deep dive stuff in the future and and chat about it on facebook or whatever so yeah absolutely um, that's a that's a great point graham and and i want to just thank you for being on the show and taking the time to go through all this stuff i think it's all really good information and and i appreciate um 
how you laid it out for us. I thought that was excellent. Um, like we were talking about earlier, if there are listeners with other further questions, let's post those on my Facebook page and we can kind of have some community discussion on that forum um, about certain certain situations or further questions that people might have. Um, I think that would be a great yeah, thing to there's do. Always the, there's always the what ifs that come up and I'm always happy to kind of debate those. Some mm-hmm. of them are open-ended answers to open-ended questions kind of things, but sure. um, always happy to discuss that with people and, and uh, or dial up some other bigger experts in the field and get them excited about talking to you guys as well. Yeah. Well, again, thank you very much, Graham. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time and, and look forward to further conversations with you. Sounds good. Thanks, Caleb. Really appreciate it. This was fun. All right. Cheers, man. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that as helpful as I did. What a great review. Thanks, Graham. If you have any further questions that we can start online discussions about, Graham will peep in on the Avalanche Hour Facebook page and be more than happy to dive into rabbit holes about what-if scenarios. You can find links to the ICAR MedCom guidelines as well as the WMS guidelines and other links Graham mentioned in our show notes. Looking at avalanche.org, all I see is orange and red blotches. Time to dial it back, everyone. Thanks again to TAS Gazex and 10 Barrel for supporting the cause. Thanks to Mike T for the artwork. Music today was performed by Anatech, found at freemusicarchive.com, and made possible through the Creative Commons license. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers. Cheers.